2020 Year in Review. Zach Warren from America Lawyer Media stops by. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, audience. Today, we're capping off this year of 2020, which has been a year of many things. It's been the year of the pandemic. It's been a year of great political division, a year of protests and riots, a year of shutdowns and tremendous economic challenges. But it's also been a year to be grateful for what we have and try to remember and help, if you can, those less fortunate, especially this holiday season. And so to help us kick off our discussion today, we welcome our guest, Zach Warren. He is the editor-in-chief of the American Lawyer Media's Legal Tech News. Welcome to the show, Zach. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You know, it can make sense to sort of close the year out with you, Zach, because I think we sort of started our year with you all out there in New York, and I believe it was early February, uh, yep. slightly before the world changed a lot. And we're out there covering Legal Week. So one of our favorite trips out there to the Big Apple, uh, love the Hilton, that whole setup. But uh, that was a fun event. I did not know that the world was going to uh, suddenly <laughs> change so quickly after that. It really, it feels like it was a decade ago at this point, because I remember I went out to New York and then me, my wife, and my wife's family went on vacation to Southeast Asia. So saw Vietnam, Cambodia. Then as soon as I came back from that vacation, literally did not leave the state of Minnesota for nine months. Oh my So <laughs> it's like, I'm used to traveling all over the place, seeing people. I felt a little bit stuck here and I feel like probably everybody listening has felt a little bit stuck as well. So I know I'm not alone, but man, it feels like this past year has been a decade. Oh yeah, I've I've had reoccurring chronic cabin fever this year, and so and I've been fortunate. I've been able to get out a little bit, but still, you know, like you, I'm used to traveling, so it's been a bit of an adjustment for me. Anyway, so glad I got a chance to catch up with you. I know you all been covering a lot of stories uh, over there at ALM, and I know that's a, a bunch of different brands, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But I wanted to give you compliments because I've been utilizing some of the materials that you all been putting out there to help with this show, and of course, Legal Talk today. You know, originally we had launched the show to help the practitioner adjust to the pandemic and, you know, get their practices up to day one, something that was quicker than our typical cycle, uh, kind of our daily-ish show. But since that time, it's evolved into, into some more, more of a, a kind of general coverage of current events. But we try to take a deeper dive on the legal issues and try to provide something different than the network news out there provides. You get like a minute or two ahead or what, whatnot, but you can't really get into a deep dive discussion. So we try to get the best experts we can on Likewise, I want to talk about American Lawyer Media. Obviously, you work for them. It's several different brands. You know, for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, you know, what type of reporting do you all do and the kinds of people that write for you? Tell us about it. Yeah, absolutely. It really is a little bit of everything because on its face, ALM does stand for American Lawyer Media. So the American Lawyer being the flagship brand, which puts out the AMLAW rankings of the top law firms, very focused on the business of law. But over the years, ALM has grown to incorporate a number of other brands like My Own Legal Tech News, which is at the intersection of law and technology, the National Law Journal, which is based out of D.C., covers the Supreme Court and a lot of national litigation, there's Corporate Counsel Magazine, which is primarily focused on in-house professionals. And then there are a bunch of regional magazines like the New York Law Journal, the Recorder out in California, Daily Business Review in Florida, that really take a look at those local courts. So honestly, it is a little bit of everything, which even to me internally can seem a little bit overwhelming at times because, say, I'm covering something technology related. It might be at a local court in Florida where they say, hey, they're doing this remote review or something like that. Can you help out here? Pitch in with uh, big tech litigation out in California. There's so much that so many people 
in this company you're trying to do and cover from a lot of different angles that it makes your head spin. But ultimately, I think really helps our coverage get that overarching view of just about every angle you can. Especially this year, uh, it's just been such an amazingly difficult news cycle for the whole year to keep up with. I, I just think that the news cycle is getting quicker and quicker. And, uh, you know, especially with the with the election news, uh, election challenge has been a really challenging story for us to follow. And so I want to get into some of the top stories, uh, you know, from the year that you all have been paying attention to. And so the one that we're not going to feature, unfortunately, is election coverage. It's not my area of expertise. And Zach, from our pregame, I know that you specifically yep. have not been personally covering it, but certainly something that we're keeping an eye on. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to try to do some, some type of chronology detail as to what happened to sort of bring shed some light on some of the issues there. But that is a story that I, I've never seen a story move that fast and in so many different directions. So we'll just cautiously stay away from that one and we'll move over to COVID-19. And so obviously, Zach, like uh, everybody else in the news, you've probably been reading about the vaccine coming out. We've yep. done a couple of episodes on that. And so, you know, tell us about some of your coverage over there at ALM regarding the COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't even think you know this, Lawrence, but my wife is actually a doctor. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, she (laughs) works out of a hospital here in Minneapolis. So she is on the list next week due to get the vaccine. Well, please tell her thank you for her service. (laughs) I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Will do. So yeah, this is something that I've been keeping an eye on very closely. And from a legal perspective, I, I mean, the regulations surrounding what exactly pharmaceutical companies can do, the FDA. I think a lot of people have been taking a look at that. There's also, from a legal standpoint, the idea of risk. So how much risk is, say, like a Pfizer willing to take on by, yes, you want to be first to market with that this vaccine, but legally, are they liable if, say, there are unforeseen circumstances or side effects down the road? That was something that I know their conversation their lawyers had a lot of conversations with the government about. They got to a place where they ultimately agreed, but that was something that in our reporting we were kind of keeping track of is, so what does it, are there potential lawsuits to arise out of this thing? Because obviously we're trying to get this vaccine up and running as quick as possible for obvious reasons. But on the flip side, I know these companies are thinking in the back of their minds, man, I really hope this goes okay, like all of our scientists says it's going to, because if it doesn't, there's going to be some ramifications down the road. Yeah, no, I definitely think it, uh, for a lot, even these really large pharmaceutical companies, potentially, I bet the business moment for them, obviously of huge concern. And, uh, you know, in addition to health concerns, it's been a big a year of concerns for civil rights. I know that you all been covering those as well. And so, you know, talking about Black Lives Matter, uh, some of the protests around the country and some of those that uh, descended into riots. I know that you've been paying attention to that. So tell us about some of your featured coverage. Yeah, um, that's another one. It's been an interesting year for me personally. Coming from uh, Minneapolis. (laughs) I live in South Minneapolis, walking distance from where a lot of stuff went down. So yeah, from that perspective, I've been certainly keeping an eye and I mean, not even keeping an eye. It was happening right outside my front door. But from the legal perspective as well, I mean, legal's been seeing the same reckoning that I think a lot of industries have seen, where you weren't necessarily, or you were paying attention to diversity, but you weren't actually making it actionable 
I think, in a lot of cases. A lot of our reporting from the American lawyer has been about exactly that. Okay, a lot of law firms, corporate legal departments have talked the talk, but when it comes to actually collecting some of these metrics, have they really walked the walk? A lot of major law firms, they'll hire diverse lawyers, but say they won't actually raise them to partner or senior partner or give them work which gives them origination credits and actually gives them bonuses that allows them to advance within the law firm itself. Um, We're also seeing a lot of people who are looking to hire law firms starting to ask those questions for the first time, starting to ask for diversity metrics, saying, we're not going to hire you unless you have X percent of your staff, X percent of the people who are working on this particular suit be lawyers of diverse backgrounds. So that's something new that I think a lot of the legal industry maybe have given a little bit of thought to, but actually need to take action on moving forward. And I commend the people who are actually pushing law firms and corporate legal departments to collect that data and actually push them to do something different for that first time. Let's transition into something a little more lighthearted, say like censorship. <laughs> so, yeah, the most lighthearted. <laughs> so obviously this year, you know, Section 230 has come on our radar quite a bit. You know, we've, we've dedicated more than a few shows about that this year. Just about Section 230, social media's collision with that. And uh, groups out there that feel that they've been censored for their political beliefs that might be different than the owners of those companies. And by those companies, I mean Twitter, I mean Google, I mean Facebook. And so I know you all have dedicated, uh, you know, some of your uh, authorship there and articles. But uh, you know, tell us about some of the stories that uh, you've been uh, seeing, reading about, and sharing. Certainly. And I know, as I'm sure you've covered in the past as well, it seems to be kind of an interesting division between what the politicos are saying about all this and what the lawyers are saying about all this. Because, yeah, there really is that divide where we honestly haven't seen too terribly many lawsuits themselves about Section 230. I know I was looking earlier, there was one major one where a bunch of conservative commentators filed suit against YouTube, saying that they were being discriminated against on their platform. There have been one or two others concerning the algorithms of YouTube, Google, Facebook, etc. But when it comes to the fight over Section 230, a lot of it does tend to be political. And if there's going to be change in that arena, I think it's going to come more from the legislative side of things than from the judicial side of things. Uh, We've seen already in recent days where Donald Trump has talked about, I'm not signing the funding bill without taking out Section 230. He's gotten some Republican politicians on board with that. What that means for the Stored Communications Act moving forward, I think a lot of lawyers from both sides of the aisle, honestly, are very cautious and reticent about that because I would imagine there would be unforeseen legal consequences dealing with, so if you take away that liability or the shield from liability that opens not only Facebook, Twitter, but a lot of news gathering organizations up to liability as well, based on just what they're reporting that others say. I think that there are a lot of unanswered questions. It wouldn't surprise me if I can like put on my Swami hat. Sure. To, uh, <laughs> I I wouldn't be surprised to see Section 230 change in some form in 2021 or 2022, but repealing it outright, I'm not sure is going to be a step that a lot of lawyers from either side of the aisle necessarily want to take. 
Yeah, you know, my big takeaway from that, you know, I obviously work in media, so I'm a big believer in free speech. And even if it's speech you don't want to hear, you know, I still want to protect everyone's right to say it because if we don't, you know, censorship could be a real bad problem. And so, you know, my big takeaway from it was that, you know, Section 230, it might be imperfect and maybe need some adjustments. I think you can make some arguments it needs to be adjusted a little bit to be in alignment with its original intent, which was to create free speech in a new form online. But, uh, you know, my big takeaway from it was that not every... Uh, um, I guess solution has to come from the law or the law is imperfect. And so you can't really get the solution from it. that was kind of my learn, I guess my learned lesson from that. And it was a little frustrating, but you know, that's obviously me putting my media hat on that first amendment hat. So yeah, no, and I mean, I'm also in the media. I went to J school. I'm right with you on that regard, but I think it is, does say something about the ability of the free market to regulate itself as well. Because if you look at a lot of these social media companies that Trump and others are getting angry at, it's not necessarily the companies themselves <laughs> that are doing anything. It's the reaction that they're getting from outside people online that may be, not be in line with what they want. So it seems kind of like they're aiming their guns at the wrong place to aim it at Section 230 when it seems like it's much more of a political problem than a legislation one to me. But we'll see how it comes out because I I understand that the FCC is taking a look at Section 230. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Last question for you today, Zach, you know, court closures, obviously with the pandemic, we've had to make a lot of closures around the country in terms of business, but, you know, the courts were no exception. And I know that threw a lot of people's schedules off. It it slowed down a lot of uh, redress the courts were giving. It slowed down criminal procedures and people's rights and, you know, their property and personal interests were all impacted by that. But uh, courts have been trying to kind of get their footing again. And I know you all have been covering that. And it's something that doesn't get featured in in that mainstream media cycle because it's just not something that people think about uh, in terms of affecting their their everyday lives. But you all cover that, and I think it's important for people to know more about it. Yeah, I think it's extremely important, especially from an access to justice perspective. You're right. It's not the sexiest thing in the world to talk about necessarily, but if you're thinking about all of these public places have been closed since March, that largely means that pretty much any criminal case, any civil case, even down to the smallest ad hoc, like I'm suing my landlord for 750 bucks, all of this stuff has taken a back seat, which means that the justice system itself has largely taken a back seat. Now, there's been some questions, okay, could this actually be a good thing moving forward for the courts because they've had to up their technology, they've realized that they can do some things virtual, they can automate some of the processes. I'm a little bit skeptical that that's exactly where the courts are moving, just because a lot of attorneys have pushed back against that. And they say, we want to be in person. You lose a lot by trying to do a trial over Zoom versus being able to see the defendant, see the jurors in person, pick up on body language. But one thing that could arise out of all this, I really think the transparency into courts has a improved over these nine months just by necessity because you weren't able to see people in person. You weren't able to actually attend a hearing, which is a right of people to do in many cases. So one of 
the most interesting stories to me that we did was actually just last week, where 14 federal courts, ranging from Montana to Tennessee and all over the U.S., said, hey, we're going to be live streaming some federal cases of note starting in February as a pilot program. We're going to see how well it goes. And that sort, if that actually does work and if it expands, having that sort of insight into what exactly is happening in these courts, more transparency. Yes, there's going to be a backlog, and I think that backlog is going to continue on for a while due to COVID, but it's something that I don't think courts were going to do on their own without some sort of interruption. Somebody that I was talking to made the analogy the other day that you can't really change the tires on a car while it's moving. It's You can try, but it's just not going to work. There are too many moving parts. It's not going to fit correctly. It takes a full stop to actually make serious changes, change a tire on that car. This year in courts was that full stop. And when we see courts get going again, I would hope that there would be some access to justice changes where people are able to not only be pro se litigants, represent themselves in a more reasonable fashion using some of that automation, using some of that transparency that courts have had the time to think over, but also just in general, the outside public understands what courts do a little bit more as well because they're able to see things through live streaming, call into telephonic hearings, et cetera. So, I mean, we're still in the middle of it all. A lot of it's up in the air, but it does... Out of everything this year in law, it's the one thing that does leave me a little bit hopeful. Well, Zach, it was great catching up. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you again for having me. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Hope you're all having a wonderful holiday season. And thank you so much for making this show part of your day in 2020. And one last time in 2021 to thank our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN crew. Y'all did an incredible job this year. Thank you so much for your dedication. Much, much appreciated. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Cluddy. Have a happy new year, everybody. (laughs) 